Benjamin Northey is the chief conductor of the Christchurch Symphony Orchestra and the principal conductor in residence of the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. Born and raised in Ballarat, he embraced music as an expression from an early age. Flute, clarinet and saxophone were instruments of choice. An appetite and enthusiasm for further exploration saw him develop skills in arranging and pursue piano, trumpet and violin to add to his developing skill set. Northey graduated with performance studies in classical saxophone from the University of Melbourne Conservatorium of Music. He followed this promptly with a Master of Music in Conducting from the Victorian College of the Arts and further study abroad. With a progressive and diverse approach to repertoire, he has collaborated with a broad range of artists and is adept at a terrific range of musical styles. And Benjamin Northey likes nothing more than to lead an audience through a sensory experience of music. He does it with passion, pride and perfection. Benjamin Northey joined me in a fascinating discussion of the musician's process, the role of the audience and the healing properties of all the disciplines in the arts. So they're fine. They're all in good health. Dad's 81, just something ridiculous like that. So you know. Is he really? My God. Yes. Yes. I know, I know. Because, yeah, so, yeah. of course, he's responsible for launching my teaching career. Is that right? Wow. He gave me my job at college, yeah. He was acting oh, is that um, right? head at the time that I, I went didn't, in. Yeah. I didn't realise that. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, he, he sort of stopped teaching after that college experience and started running that residential college up in Canberra at, at yeah. um, Bergman College. And then sort of went more into administration after that. But at his heart, he's always been a teacher. Like that's his, that's been his kind of main um, calling, I think, in his life, you know. And a bit of a bit of an actor as well. I, I got to share the boards. Back, with him in, back in the day, yeah. Is that right? What show <laughs> yes. was it? It was Murder in the Cathedral, oh which God, we did for a, a Begonia Festival. Wow. I'll have to remind him. And, and your uncle, of course... Um, is uh, the former coach of Richmond Football Club, John. That's Morgan. right. Yeah, yeah. He's he's doing well. He lives out out of Melbourne, kind of down in Druin or somewhere like that. Um, uh, very kind of rural lifestyle. We're just escaping the whole um, chaos of his former life, I think. But uh, yeah, I, I've I've become the football fanatic in the family since he retired. So I've taken over that mantle of way too emotionally invested in AFL. It's it's embarrassing at times. But um did, did you play something. did you play AFL growing up? Well I, I did up until about year nine. I was way too skinny. But the other <laughs> thing was mum mum just would not let me bust my fingers. Like so she banned me from playing from year nine. And I played soccer after that because and she was right too. Like I was playing flute and saxophone and there was no way that um if I wanted a career in music I was going to be out there breaking my fingers you know um so she was right uh and probably saved me from god knows how many injuries really when you look at my uncle's body shoulder knees fingers are just like broken tree uh branches like just you know it puts you through the ring at football i think and i guess not till later in life that those sort of um traumas come home to haunt haunt oneself yeah yeah um, as, you get, so. as you get as you get older yeah Oh, the knee replacements. Dad's had a hip done recently, you know, because he played a lot of football. Um, yeah. So far, haven't had to do that. Touch wood. Um, yeah. It wouldn't be a Ballarat <laughs> conversation without uh, talking about the weather. Ballarat's a bloody yeah. cold place, isn't it? Oh, my God. Climate change has not touched Ballarat. Like, I feel like the rest of the world will just melt and Ballarat will still be this freezing mountain village to go and visit, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, driving up from Melbourne, I remember there's also always a place where suddenly it drops by about five degrees and you think, I oh, know. close to Ballarat. Yeah, exactly. Kicks in. That's true. You, you wonder how all those gold miners survived in, in canvas tents. Brutal. I must have been making <laughs> some money. That's all I can say. <laughs> ben, I, I read with great delight recently uh, an essay that, that you've written called Stillness and Transformation, A Conductor's Perspective, which uh, is available online for, for people to read. Um, and in it, you describe um, the, 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 what the dearth of music is doing to uh, our community at the moment in this time of, of the pandemic. Um, there was a line which sort of struck me, you know, suddenness, 
the suddenness of the quiet uh, has been most shocking for everyone. It, it happened all of a sudden, didn't it? What were you doing? Well, I was just flat out um, in the lead up to that. Th this year, you know, normally the orchestras take a bit of a break in January, but this year, for some reason, and, and it's been happening for a while now that they start earlier. There just seems to be more activity earlier. So first week of January, I was in Hong Kong, of all places, um, and I, that was where I first heard about this potential new virus. Uh, I was in Hong Kong on the 1st of January until the 5th of January. I remember at the at the port where the ferries come in, getting served a coffee by a guy with, with a, a mask, mask on, yeah. clearly sick. And <laughs> and I just read about the this new thing and I thought, oh, God, this isn't going to a good place, you know. And, of course, it was way too early um, to be exposed to it. But uh, that was my first kind of brush with it. I got back from Hong Kong and then it was just game on. Like every week there were at least one project, sometimes two. And so by the time we got to March, I was in Christchurch on the 12th um, and it was well and truly like, is this concert gonna go ahead? Because they'd started to talk about restrictions and all that kind of stuff. But I'd done 14 concerts in the year up to that point. So, you know, it was, it was literally just this whirlwind of work came back, the border closed the day I came back. So the quarantine 14 day period that happened at midnight the day I got back from Christchurch. Wow. Uh, and coming through the airport, like I just remember that was not a pleasant experience at all. And then MSO decided they were going to heroically perform a Beethoven symphony on the Thursday of that week. You know, I got back on the Sunday and you know, everyone was just in, in this weird um, terrified state and MSO go, we're going to go, do this gig with to no audience and uh that was very surreal and and you know a couple of players just refused to come and oh, fair enough we had to spread out in the hall and you know be 1.5 meters apart from each other it was crazy it ended up being a really memorable special performance but uh you know that that was the last hurrah and then as you say it just dropped off a cliff for everyone in the in the performing arts um, you just couldn't do anything, even if you wanted to. So all of a sudden you could only have two people in a, in a, a room together. <laughs> so it was um, a bit difficult for orchestras. Well, an orchestra could become uh, effectively a, a hazard zone, couldn't it, with all that spittle and blowing and, and breath? Um... Well, the, the studies have shown it's not as bad as you would think. Apparently singing is diabolical. So, right. and fair enough. I mean, you know, I've conducted opera and you would know yourself, like when you're at close range, even to someone projecting their voice, I mean, you're just sprayed, right? So um, this is this is the world of singing. And the choirs, the stories of the choirs as super spreading um, groups, that's a tragedy. I mean, that's just yeah. awful. You know, one of the, the best, most rich, good things humans can do to sing together um, has been somehow taken away from us. But they have sort of, uh, examined what happens when you play an instrument and it seems that if you're appropriately distanced a meter they reckon that it's perfectly safe um, so that's encouraging but there'll, there'll have to be more to do but I mean I'm I'm sort of reminded that you're allowed to play football Peter you're allowed yes. to hug yeah. another person and sweat yeah. all over them so yeah. you're allowed to get on a Qantas flight and sit three abreast, but you're not allowed to play a metre apartment orchestra. I mean, I think there are these inconsistencies that will have to get worked through at some point. I mean, clearly, I would prefer to be in a rehearsal than sit on a plane, right? That, that no, no uh, competition. That I would feel much safer in the rehearsal. <laughs> so I thought, I'm sure this will start to get worked out. Uh, so with this uh, this this uh, isolation, this, this shutdown, a lot of musicians, of course, are, are losing their livelihood. But I think the other big uh, thing which is causing a lot of pain is just that artist's essential need to express themselves um, emotionally, creatively. Um, yeah. And that's something that you talk about in the essay as well, that we're uh, bound together in concert, uh, you so eloquently put. Um, so... Well, you know, this is this is the whole game, Peter, isn't it? I mean, we we uh, we live for that interaction, and that's our that's our gift to people. 
is what we are able to uh, create, what we are able to perform for. And, and the audience completes that experience, don't they? I mean, it's, it's it does. not a performance always, without an audience. Well, this is, this is it. I mean, now we're in this very strange situation where we're unable to perform for a live audience. However, the online experience still has an audience. And I mean, even that Beethoven Symphony we did with Melbourne Symphony right before the shutdown, I think 4,000 people watched that. So that's, you know, a couple of concert halls worth of, of people. So you have to remind yourself that there is still the potential to connect, but it's just not the same feeling of that exchange between a performer and an audience. Um, that's very, very difficult to get your head around. And for those people who are prohibited from performing, just totally, that can be very um, confronting, especially for it to happen suddenly like that. Like players in the orchestras, when they retire, they all talk about their whole sense of self changes. And I'm sure it's the same for anyone. It can be any, any walk of life, to be honest. But when your identity is caught up in what you do, um, when that's taken away from you, it's it's a very, very confronting experience for people. Uh, you talk about also that it's crucial that we musicians continue to reach out to our audiences to connect with people and help them navigate a path. I mean, other than online, have you thought about how musicians are able to, to connect with an audience in this climate? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think ultimately, if we're unable to perform for larger audiences for quite a while, there may be the possibility to perform in smaller groups for smaller audiences. And I'm talking about going and playing in the driveway of an old person's home or going into uh, you know, a school situation where you're outside in a safe environment and playing a chamber group. So I think the live experience is something we, should, we need to try and do. It's just, it's going to, it is going to be very, very challenging um, to do that. But, you know, it struck me, Peter, that the, the way that the, the effect of the social distancing is to fracture us in our normal ways that we come together. So our normal ways that we unify is shared experiences, going to the sport, doing a community activity together, uh, going to a concert, all this kind of thing. That's now taken away. And as it comes back, those fracture lines are the things that musicians and performers can help to heal, if that makes sense. You know, it's, it's yep. actually, uh, hopefully, we'll get to the point where people feel perfectly safe to come. I mean, that's the most important thing. And I think we can do that. There must be a way that it's, it's um, not taking your life into your own hands to go out to a concert. I mean, people are going to work. It's, it's, not, diff it's not that different. And... And I'm, I'm really optimistic that music can play that role because that's the thing we can't really do at the moment. We can't do the bringing people together thing that we always do. That's what's unique about this situation. Mm. Um, music is a medicine, isn't it? It's, a, it's, um, it's therapeutic. It's a, it's, yeah, it has great healing powers. So hopefully... Well, it's um, really important when, when we're confronted with something as uh, existential as this, and you know, I always talk about the experience in Christchurch where I'm the chief conductor. I've been there for six years and seeing that post earthquake rebuild that's gone on in Christchurch and just how it was a different experience of music and performing uh, before the quake and, and after the quake, the audience really needed the art. And it's fascinating to me, like even when that terrorist attack happened over there, the whole horrible mosque shooting, the way that people expressed their empathy and their grief was by going to the mosque and singing or playing something. It was through music. And that's that the core of what we can express through music that we just can't in any other way. So I think, I think that's uh, important to remember, actually. Well, as you say in your essay, too, it's a communion. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm always um, thinking of the experience from the audience's point of view, because it's so easy for us to get caught up in what we do, and especially in the abstract world of classical music or, or um, art music, whatever you want to call it. But uh, you can end up being guided solely by your own um, artistic needs. And that, that's probably interesting uh, as well. And it, can't, it doesn't mean that won't engage an audience either. But I do think that if we're, if we're in the helping people game, we need to think about what's going to be the best thing we can do for them right now. 
And that doesn't mean playing something familiar by any means. It doesn't mean pandering. It just means that we we make our decisions based on their experience. So I'm really interested in the presentation of concerts, for example, and, and making um, changes to make that way more engaging and making it more intimate because that's the one thing we're going to miss is the intimacy. We're going to be all spread out and concert halls are already cavernous and too far away from the orchestra. We have to be able to use technology to make that a more intimate experience for people. You're talking about uh, small groups and driveways, etc. It reminded me of a, a, a exciting childhood memory I have of the Salvation Army going around at Christmas time on the back of a truck just playing Christmas carols, you know, and then moving on to the next street. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is exactly what I'm talking about, you know. Yeah. I mean, there there is a... We, you know, we're very adaptable human beings, and I've, I've been saying this a little bit. We, we might not be able to see the answers right now, but we will find them. It'll just take time and we'll have to work it out. But that's what our great gift as humans. We just seem to be able to adapt to almost to any situation. So we'll work it out. Ben, what was the first instrument you picked up? Uh, Mum had me playing the piano um, because she was a pianist. So that was, that was kind of number one, um, which I have to confess I, I didn't enjoy at all. Uh, <laughs> For some reason, I don't know. I just the whole notion of repetitive, you know, practice of technical things like scales. I, I just isn't that terrible. Um, violin, grade prep. I remember Ballarat Grammar, where Dad was teaching, and um, Jane Davidson, wonderful string head of strings there, uh, getting given a tiny little, must have been a quarter size violin or something, and wandering up and having my lessons with her. I mean, you know, this is the the days of individual um, lessons for preps. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, that's, let's bring those back. That was just a game changer for me to have that level of one-on-one of -on -one time to really learn about an instrument and about music. And so uh, played in the little string orchestra. I remember my feet dangling off the chair and, you know, hacking through some um, piece of music for a performance. But I still remember that, you know, at, at five, six years old, I can vividly remember that experience. So uh, why did the violin win over the, the piano? Was it the, the tactile experience? Was it the teaching? Was it the sound? You know what? I have no idea. I think I just had to pick something, maybe. It might have been. I mean, that was the thing. It wasn't that you were picking an instrument that you had to necessarily stick to. That, In my mind, at least, it was kind of like a, a box of lollies that you could choose at different times and so I picked up the trumpet in grade uh, must have been grade two or three I guess I just wanted to make a louder sound or saw it somewhere and thought oh that looks awesome I want to play the trumpet and there was also a great trumpet teacher called Lance Black there and this is the thing it's the teachers isn't it Peter as yeah. you know it's yeah. it's just so important you can just make such a massive change in someone's direction as a teacher so I played uh, trumpet um, I ditched the violin pretty early. I think I must have kept playing that until about grade five, but trumpet took over. And in grade six, I, I remember I was playing in the Ballarat Junior Brass Band. And that was a lot of fun as well. Again, that was a memorable experience. I know you had quite an extensive music education through your primary and secondary years, and that's obviously served you well in the vocation that you pursued. But, but to the child who won't necessarily make music their life, music education mm -hmm. is still an essential experience for the developing human isn't it it's just a, a pillar of our experience of art and creativity so i mean you know this is this is where we have now a really skewed idea of what art is and the importance of it and and its role in education so and it, it comes down to the value of creativity as well. And I've seen this even post this pandemic, just seeing the kind of floundering government response specifically about art. It just shows you it's just not on the agenda really uh, as something that's crucial at the core. And it can be very threatening, I think, for, for a more conservative leaning um, person because it, there is an element of danger to art. There's an element of kind of protest and um, and change. I mean, it goes it goes against the whole idea of being a conservative, is that art is always changing and evolving and you know doing things new and and um, and that can be very confronting. 
But um, I think if if we're if we're talking about a full education of a of a human being, how are we doing that without an understanding of the history of culture? I mean, it's when we look at history. Okay, we've got the the kind of geopolitical military side of history. But art is right up there in terms of what we remember about the past. It's the painters, it's the composers, it's the playwrights, you know, the movies. It's going to be, you know, this is the thing. We're, we're fundamentally creative at our core. And that should be reflected in our education. And music's just right at the top of that pyramid of creative um, acts that we can partake in. So it's not a full education without it. That's my argument. And that I know I'm preaching to the choir most of the time in our little bubble of performing artists, but that message has to get through at some point to uh, government level that this is important for everything. It's not, it, it, you, know, you, you can't be a business person without being creative and art teaches you to be creative. So it's just got broad benefits across, across everything. Yeah, yeah. Hallelujah. You, Amen. Uh, you're a great advocate for the arts indeed. Um, but also, look, you're a great teacher in your role as conductor and, and musical director. Who are some of the, the teachers that you've had through your life that have inspired and, and steered you? Well, you were talking about secondary schooling before. I mean, that's really where my passion for music really started to come through. And that was because of the teachers. Um, you know, I, I spent two years before I got to Ballarat College, again, where Dad was teaching, um, at Ballarat High School. And at Ballarat High School, uh, there was a good music program there. Don Kirby, the great um, Ballarat Absolutely. drummer, fabulous musician, who I ended up playing with uh, later in a little jazz band after, um, or, you know, in my last year of school. And uh, he, was running, he was running a program there. Brenda Beck, wonderful trumpet player. And then when I got to college, it was, it was, you know, even next level. So you had Barry Curry, who is a woodwind specialist. He could just seem to be play anything, you know, such that Mr. Natural, great role model in that way, just to listen to, you just learn from hearing him play. Yeah. And Graham Bendy, who, who'd come as a, a kind of um, a professional level musician from the television world and uh, was an active pianist and arranger. And he turned, you know, he was, the head of music at Ballarat College when I was there. And it was just this explosion of opportunities and activities. So they were the ones who really made me think, wow, this is something I want to do. I, I can see myself doing music. And they just kept feeding the appetite that everyone had for it. But then it was when I got to uni, um, in terms of conducting, that wasn't even on the radar at that point in time. But it was when I went back to university after my performing uh, years. Uh, and I met John Hopkins, who was the main reason I, I got into conducting he just started up a program at the conservatorium in melbourne and i just finished my fourth year of performance degree and he encouraged me to study with him and then i met another dude this finnish guy uh yorma panela who's considered to be the world's greatest conducting teacher or at least in terms of his strike rate with um you know big name conductors who studied with him and and that was you know another mentor figure um, and I should I should also mention um, Russell Hammond, who used to run the Melbourne New Symphonic Band and the Australian Wind Orchestra, because every Saturday morning from Ballarat, I was driving down to Saturday morning music school with Melbourne Youth Music, as it was known in those days. And I learned so much during those experiences, the summer camps. I mean, all that stuff. We're all the product of our teachers, really. You know, And, yeah. and we've all had someone at some point who's believed in us enough to say, yeah, you should do this. And, um, and, and, that, and that, I think, is the, the one thing we've all got in common. Um, I've often pondered why so many Ballerations, I call them Ballerations, people from Ballerations, <laughs> like have gone on to uh, carve out such illustrious careers in the arts. And I think, you know, as you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, it's just about that explosion of opportunities. I remember, you know, you growing up, you were playing in the, the orchestra pits of the local community musical companies, you were playing in jazz bands, school orchestras. Um, they're well, priceless the experiences. It was the same for you, wasn't it, with the theatre? Oh, very stuff. much so. Very much so. Were, I mean, there was were, so much theatre to do. Yeah. I know. And, and in a way, um, they were unique to Ballarat. And that was the thing. When I got to university after having, having had that apprenticeship, which is what it was. I mean, I finished school and did VCE music and all that. But I had 
I was basically working as a semi-professional musician at the age of 17, you know, I mean, we were, we were playing in those pit orchestras for, you know, 50 bucks a night or whatever, or probably not even, um, from the age of 15, I, 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 those things were happening. And as you say, all these other bands and things that were going on, but it just felt like the legacy of Bal the arts world of Ballarat had been so rich for so long that there were all these structural things in place that enabled us to go and have these opportunities. And I spoke to a lot of friends in Melbourne who, who'd never had that kind of no. experience we just took it when they were it. coming through school or, or it was off, it was only offered by the school. Yeah. And so, you know, we were, we were just lucky in, in many ways. And also we had great teachers living in Ballarat and that made a big difference as well. Well, that um, that wing where you had a lot of your secondary music education was was the Elsie Morrison Music Centre. Now, Elsie Morrison is one of Australia's great classical singers who came from Ballarat. I know. Who knew? And and look, you know, growing up, um, who I had no idea who Elsie Morrison was. And the picture of Raphael Kubelik opening the Elsie Morrison Music Centre, of course, was her husband. Yeah. And he's there in nineteen, I don't know, seventy something cutting the ribbon to open the Elsie Morrison Music Centre, Raphael Kubelik, a name that meant nothing to us at the no, time. No, no. And it's, you know, since my conducting studies, I mean, that's one of the world's greatest ever conductors. And there he was opening the Elsie Morrison Music Centre. It's extraordinary. That was a beautiful old building to it work was, in. It was, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Great serendipity there. Uh, now, Ben, yeah. you, you were at the Conservatorium of Melbourne uh, Uni studying classical saxophone. Yeah. How old is the saxophone as an instrument? And, and does it come into classical orchestrations, obviously? Well, it, it was invented by Adolf Sax in, and I'm going to look very ignorant now, except that I know that it was sort of 1860 or 1850 or somewhere around there. Uh, and as soon as it was invented, like many instruments, it started to be used. And I always think that if it had been invented 80 years earlier, it would have been in the symphonies of Mozart. He would have written a concerto. You know, the, the, the classical composers would have definitely used it because they were using all of the new technologies. I mean, Mozart was famous for just hearing a new instrument going, oh, that's amazing. I'll write something for that. You know, that, that um, it's just how they worked. And so it originally was a classical instrument and ended up being um, divided into those registers, you know, the soprano, alto, tenor, baritone, bass, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it wasn't really until the jazz age in America where it became sort of used as a jazz instrument. And that was enough for the classical world to ditch the saxophone for a, a certain amount of time on basically racist grounds. I mean, it's essentially we're talking about uh, the whitest world of classical music, looking at an instrument that represented a kind of, a, a, for want of a better word, Negro um, music, you know, and, and that was pure racism, I've got no doubt. Because before that, Debussy writing concertos for saxophone, um, it's used in the music of Ravel. It's, I mean, a lot of the 20th century composers were using it, Rachmaninoff, Shostakovich, um it's it's there's a lot of repertoire it's just that it never became a permanent member of the orchestra and then the late 20th century it's it's become a hugely um, popular instrument in contemporary music and so um it's a it's a versatile instrument is how i would describe it and it's got it's got those connotations of not somehow being a serious classical instrument which is a shame um it's a it's a shame and and i I've, I've, I've definitely suffered because of that stigma of the instrument uh, getting into conducting, except for at the Sibelius Academy, which is this mecca for conducting, where I studied in Finland, uh, where they just did not care what you played. <laughs> and and that, was, that was unique because at the, U, the U, Central European Conservatoriums, you had to be a pianist to be a conductor, like forget it if, if you oh. played the violin even. But when I got to Finland, it was, you, you needed to be an instrumentalist. And they tested you in your audition over two days on your musical abilities, um, which some of which included hacking away at the piano and transposing and things, but it was like, play your instrument for us. 
let's hear you. Let's hear what kind of a musician this is. And when you look at the, the Finnish conductors who've done really well, they're all instrumentalists. They play the French horn, Esapeka Salonen, or the clarinet, this guy Osmo Vanska. I mean, a lot of violin players who were in the orchestra playing. Um, Susanna Malki, Jukka Pekasaraste, Nico Frank, these guys. Osmo, uh, Sakari Oromo. So it was a different way of teaching and it wasn't the stigma that I kind of feared it might be at a really big school like that. They said, we don't care what you play as long as you're a great musician. That's, that's the key, you know. Um, it's interesting, the experience with the instrument. It gave me a very broad experience of music that I wouldn't have got if I played an oboe, you know what I mean? So... I imagine a lot of those great composers would become very excited uh, by a new sound that they could implement into the into their works. You know, like like the saxophone. Um, do you have a favourite sound? Oh, that's a really good question. The saxophone's its own worst enemy because no. it can make such a wide range of sound, and that's the problem. So, I mean, it's the beauty of it, but it's the problem in in the sense that when the classical composers were writing for it. They didn't know what sound they were going to get from the performers. So like the French sound, which is kind of um, you know, made, made popular through the um, Paris Conservatoire and the teachers there, had a really thick vibrato and it was kind of like a, a violin. You know, they would play it in the same way that a violin might vibrate all the time through, through the sound. Um, I never really liked that sound. And so when I was when I was studying at the conservatorium, I was playing um, in a way, and I'd done transcriptions of, of Vivaldi oboe uh, cantatas and these things. And I was playing in a way with no vibrato, kind of like a cross between a clarinet and a flute, and very very dark sound, dark color. Um, and it sounded weird. It sounded like a kind of a baroque. Shawm or you know a, an early oboe or, or an, you know an English horn or something yeah. like that, but just yeah. different. Um, so that was the sound that I loved, the pure, a very pure approach to the sound, and much more I thought refined um, than than a normal sound. But that was when I was playing classical. When I played jazz, you know, it was completely different. I used a different setup and had a much brighter tone and all that kind of thing. So. Now, um, your role as a conductor, you're, you're standing in front of an orchestra for a, a period of time. I imagine that's quite physically and emotionally demanding. Um, how do you physically prepare for a concert? Are you, are you doing warm-ups and stretches in the dressing room before you go out there? Are you getting regular massage? Well, I didn't until I turned about 45. And then <laughs> <laughs> I realised I had to. I mean, you're right, it's deeply physical. It's very good for you aerobically because, you know, I, I bought one of these Fitbits one day um, just because I was curious to see what, what the hell's going on with my heart rate and while, when I was working and I realised that it was above 120 for the entire time I was on the podium, whether it be rehearsal or performance. Wow. <laughs> so you're talking about two hours in a morning, two hours in an afternoon of basically doing aerobics. I mean, for in, in terms of how the heart rate is. So it's all this upper body movement and breathing and, you know, it's so physical. But my, um, there's been a lot of teachers who've said, oh, you'll, you'll get smaller as you get older with your gestures because oh, you, yes, yes. It's just, you can't put your body through that, that kind of brutal, full physical uh, intensity. And what it is, because it's a, the beat requires a rebound, you end up, or you can end up, having a lot of repetitive movements that put stress on the joints so your shoulders really get it. Um, and that was what happened to me. I started my left shoulder. At one point, I couldn't even lift my left arm above my, um, my shoulder. And I went and found a wonderful um, physical therapist who I've got all these exercises and stuff that I do regularly now. And actually, as a result of not working, my body has completely like healed uh, I mean, that was the one, like, I'm not in pain yeah. as a result of not conducting. That's quite a shock, actually. My back's fine. My shoulders are absolutely fine. And I know that as soon as I start again, I'm going to have to be very careful about that and, and not wreck my, my body because, you know, carry on by the end. He couldn't walk to the podium. 
he had to be wheeled out. You know, he was basically in a in a a girdle, like a to to hold him upright, and he was just standing there like a zombie. Um, I can see how that could happen. You have to be very careful. And what was that we were saying about football injuries at the start of the conversation? <laughs> <laughs> so true. So I think all musicians, all musicians, they do struggle with these these physical things. Um, well, it's a, a, a form of RSI, I guess, just that repetitive just strain. Yeah, the same movement, and you know, a violin. I mean, have you ever held a violin? Mm. I mean, I guess you get used to it, but my God, this left arm position, yeah, it's just pain. You know, yeah. and and doing this all the time. I mean, it's very, very demanding to do every day. What about preparing for the content of a concert? Because I don't imagine you just walk up there and wave your baton and just make it up as you go along. I know you don't do no, that. How, how long does it take yeah. to prepare a concert? Depends on the piece, uh, whether you've done it before. I mean, when I was first starting out, I'd like to think I needed three months. You know, that would be my kind of... But that was ridiculous because it depends. It depends on the on the music. Um, but my debut with Melbourne Symphony, I conducted a Beethoven Symphony, and I wanted three months, and I felt like I was ready. And then, as things get really busy, you don't have three months anymore. So, for that first five years of a conducting career, you're really swimming in repertoire. You're trying your best to to hold on and know things well enough to not, you know, completely look like an idiot. And after that, it gets easier because you're getting on to repeat repertoire. And so it does take time. I mean, for, you know, a piece of music of half an hour or more, um, you could learn it really quickly. You could learn it well enough to conduct a performance of it very quickly and survive, but to truly absorb it to the point where you've got an interpretation, which is yours, that is very considered and you've done all of the, you know, the, the um, important work of marking parts possibly and, and just really fully getting across the detail. I mean, that's, we're talking months and really you never stop. Even once you've done that work, the next time you do it, you have to go back to not step one, but out of 10, probably step five and do the, the last five steps again and relearn a piece. And then you just keep refining it the more you, the more you do it. I guess conductors are known for, for certain works also that they do, like a certain actor is known for his role of Hamlet or and, and does it regularly, or opera singers are always coming out to do particular roles. Uh, can conductors yeah. are similar sort of um, repertoire yeah, they, knowledge? They certainly are. I mean, it used to be uh, probably more common that you would specialise, and it's, it's, it's a really a product of the new age of the more diverse offerings of the orchestras all of the conductors have had to broaden. I mean, and I've, I've had a ridiculously broad um, approach to it just through necessity because that's what the orchestras have been doing during my time as a conductor. And, and I guess because I'd had experience in a number of different styles of music, that made me someone they could go to when they needed the, you know, someone to put a collaboration with a pop band together um, or, or something a bit different, the film concerts, this kind of stuff. Um, but you certainly do learn which music you do well and which you don't. And that's, that's really important, I think. There's no point trying to pretend that you can conduct everything. I mean, it just doesn't happen, you know. And, and so I've, I've sort of gravitated towards certain repertoire, mainly in the 20th century for me and, and, and the classical era. Um, and certain sort of repertoire like the the sort of late 19th century Germanic stuff, Wagner, um, some Mahler, this kind of thing. I just leave it for others. There's so many other people who want to do that stuff. I'm not one of them. That's fine. <laughs> do you have a favourite composer that you like to conduct, work with? Oh, look, it's hard to go past Beethoven just from a, a purely immersive experience point of view. It's so all-consuming. Uh, and the the intensity of the music requires full intensity from the leader from and from all the players really. But that's a great challenge. I love, I love his music and, and conducting. It's like nothing else. Very physical. You really feel it in your body after you've conducted Beethoven. Um, but after that, it's the 20th century modernists. So Debussy absolutely adore his music. Just absolutely love it. Bella Bartok, Igor Stravinsky, um, Prokofiev, you know, this style of music, that's what I really 
and passionate about. I really love that stuff. Look, I'm sure there's not a listener who hasn't picked up a pencil in front of the stereo and just conducted the stereo. Um, and we're all very jealous of conductors who have the opportunity to stand in front of an orchestra and whether they're playing full out or you're, you're massaging a gentle melody. Um, can you describe for us that that feeling of, of standing in front of that um, sometimes? How big is an orchestra? 60 members or something? At least, yeah. Um, it, it varies, but normally around 65. Um, and if you've got a chorus and a big orchestra, you can have 200 people in front of you, 250 even. Um, the, the misconception about conducting is that it looks like it's an expression of power. Right. That's yep. what it looks like. Yep. And it does. You've got one person there that everyone's following. Yeah, as if and you're driving the like, bus. It just looks like a dominant kind of um, focus that's going on. That's not what's happening that's not what it is it's still collaborative in in what's happening there's a cycle going on between the musicians and the conductor and you're all actually part of the team it's just the conductor has to make big decisions on behalf of the group so you know i'd like to say that it feels like you know you're you're um floating all the time it does sometimes on this extraordinary sound that you've got sorry i just got a text message um but the the reality is that a lot of the time it just feels like an immense amount of responsibility so you, you and, and often you're just in in a constant state of evaluating what you're hearing and working out how best to shepherd the performance in the direction that you want it to go and um, what the musicians need at that time. You're actually, you're trying to help the musicians, if that makes any sense. Yep. And you're also trying to know when to just get the hell out of the way and let them play. So that's the, that's the reality of what's going on. The conductor is, it's mentally very draining for that reason, because you just can't switch off at any time. And um, if you screw up, everyone does. It's, you know, very difficult to... Um, to get a performance back on track if you've made a, a major error that affects everyone. And, and you know, it's just a lot of pressure in, in that sense. Uh, at, at its peak, it is all of the things that you would expect it to be, where you feel like you just can't believe the, the kind of feelings that you're having from the music and um, how uplifting the experience is and all the highs that every, all of us performers get. It's exactly the same. And the lows as well. I'm sure things go wrong occasionally. What's what's the most horrifying or chilling thing that has happened to you? Uh, I've had I've had we've all been humiliated on stage, Peter, um, <laughs> at many different times. All of us performers, um, and and that's part of the game, isn't it? Uh, oh, look, I had a shocking experience last year where um, I was conducting a, a cellist and a, a cello concerto, and he was on the stage shows you the importance of staging. He was put way too close to me. So we were kind of like competing for the space. Uh, and, and in the rehearsal, it hadn't been like that. It was just in the performance. They hadn't marked the spots for the cello podium and we were right next to each other. And I couldn't get away from him really. Like his bow was, was right across where I was. Wow. Wow. And I had to move and I was like, Oh my God, we're doing the Elgar cello concerto. And we're about two thirds of the way through the first movement. And he did this big flourishing up bow and his bow hit my elbow and he dropped his bow and it fell onto the metal frame of this podium and broke. No. <laughs> Mid-performance. Like you might as well have like thrown a baby on the ground. Like it was just, you know, just awful, awful. He was shattered. You know, bows are really personal. They cost a lot of money. Um, and, um, that was just an awful feeling, and he he had to sort of walk off stage and get his spare bow. I'm left there. Uh, I mean, I don't think the audience fully realised what had happened. Like it sort of looked like he dropped the bow, um, but I turned around to the audience and I all I could think to say was, "And it was going so well." <laughs> and we all had a bit of a laugh. Um, but you know, there, there've been silly experiences all over the place. Uh, when you do a piece, a concert with 20 different pieces of music, like we did a collaboration with Circus Oz years ago with Melbourne Symphony and 
um, I've got this pile of music, you just, you know, one after the other, huge stack of it. And I'm finishing a piece and moving on to the next piece. And I forgot after performance number four, that one of the pieces I had to get back out of the stack and put in a different place because it came up later in the show. And so I started one piece of music and the orchestra played a completely different piece of music <laughs> quite well. And there's not many art forms that you can begin the wrong piece of music and it's fine. That's unusual, actually. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. You're up there. You've got your back to the audience. Is it uh, easy to gauge uh, their engagement, whether they're, um, they're tuned in or they're, they're restless? Uh... Yeah, I think you can feel the room. Um, and you can certainly hear the quiet of listening. You can hear an audience listening or not. And it's not like every cough means they're not listening, but you can just feel a restlessness um, go, go through an audience if they're disinterested. And you, you're constantly aware of the atmosphere of the room. And, in, in, you know, when I ask people, what do you look for in a conductor from an audience's point of view? And often the word is atmosphere. That's what they want. They want the atmosphere to be created. And the audience are a really key part of that. Um, so you're cer certainly aware of, of the audience and, and you're aware of, um, of your role in connecting them with the music because it's not just about performing. You can direct the audience's listening at through your conducting as well, which is really interesting. You've conducted opera too. What's it like with that added element of voices? Because there's another section that you're responsible for. Well, you have to change the way that you approach the um the process i mean in in orchestral music there are times where you hand over the reins to a, a soloist or someone to give them space to play and you become an accompanist in opera you're an accompanist much more of the time and so you can you can have um a group of singers that do a role a certain way and regardless of what your thoughts are on that role, you might be able to find some kind of compromise and middle ground, but ultimately they're going to do their version of that role, possibly changed a bit, but it's still them. And that's a very different mindset when you go into a rehearsal because your job is different. It's not necessarily to say this is how it goes. It's to bring the best performance out of that person and to look after them when they're on stage so that they can have that best performance and that requires a lot of sensitivity to accompanying the singers so um i don't think you're really a conductor unless you've conducted opera and done it well because it's just next level in terms of the demands and and really sorts people out and uh you you do need to 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 be a natural accompanist and very very sensitive to the needs of this of the voice and the singers individually because you can just wreck them if you're not careful i mean you just hang them out to dry up there um and that's not good for anyone do you have a ritual you go through when you arrive at the the theater or the concert hall before a performance um do you make sure you go around and see every orchestra member um you've got a lucky yeah, rabbit's foot sort of <laughs> no it varies i'm not a superstitious person um I do get to places ridiculously early. I mean, that's just something I've always done. I, I like having time. I don't want to be rushed. Um, but often it's just, it's, you know, for me, it's that time to mentally get into the zone and, and just get my mind. I, I sort of don't have any one way of doing that, but it's usually just meditating on the music or thinking about the music um, and, you know, how, how sort of visualisation, I guess, that how I would like this to turn out and then, and then making sure that um, you're not, you're in charge of your nerves because, you know, we're all nervous on the side of stage, but just making sure that they're being really focused into something that's a heightened awareness. And it's weird, you know, I've never really thought about it, but uh, when I look back, that's always brought the best out in me, that, that slight fear. And everyone responds differently to that. Like that can be really crushing for some people. And for me, for whatever reason, it's always made me better 
it's taken like I've, I've just been way more alert because of that and so I can have um, a dreadful rehearsal uh, experience and then in the concert just everything comes together and a lot of that's the musicians as well you know every, a lot of orchestras are like that too but I just always feel like I can pull it out when it counts you know what I mean like it's it's a really important skill to have I, I don't know how you you do it but it must be part of that mental preparation of, of just not wanting to be um, intimidated by the experience. I, I think that's something that the, the punters in the audience don't fully comprehend that, you know, being an artist, that anxiety and incredible nerves and fear that can happen, especially in that five minutes when you're in the wings waiting to go on or whatever. And then you walk out there and you're completely at home. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, How that you have that shift in, in attitude. So true. So true. That's what you're after, isn't it? To feel like, you're in your living room when you get out on stage and, and it's home, you know, that, and that, that is how it feels when, when you have done it a lot, I reckon you just get out there and it's like, this is where I belong right now. Yeah. It's a good feeling. Well, Benjamin Northey, I, I hope it's not too long before we see you where you belong on a podium in front of an orchestra um, and that uh, audiences all over Australia can, can get back to concert halls and um, experience that live music sensation, which is so uh, fulfilling for the soul. Thank you, Peter. And yeah, it's been really good to chat to you. And uh, we will be back. The music will return. Uh, it's just going to be a bit of a long path that we'll have to navigate ourselves. But I, I really think that um, by this time next year, you'd like to think that we're playing, uh, you know, concerts for re healthy audiences in, in concert halls again. So fingers crossed. Said the non-superstitious person <laughs> crossing his fingers. <laughs> It'd be great to catch up. Well, next time I'm up in Sydney, absolutely. Parramatta Park, I think, is my next concert on paper with Sydney Symphony in January next year. So outdoor concert, that should be easily socially distanced, I would have thought. It should be Bring a picnic. absolute go. Exactly. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. Right. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> Good on you, Pete. Take care, mate. Ben's insightful essay, Stillness and Transformation, A Conductor's Perspective, is a brilliant reflection on the current pandemic and what it has done to the arts, especially the music makers, orchestras and their personnel. Find it online. That's where I discovered it. It's a sobering read. My guest today, conductor Benjamin Northey. Thanks for making us a part of your podcast listening. A new episode of The Stages podcast is released every Thursday. And occasionally, there's a bonus episode dropped in for good measure. Until next time, I'm Peter Ayers, and you've been listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives. Keep warm, keep well, and I'll catch you next time.